Hi everybody, this is Andrew from Therefore I Geek. Don't be alarmed, you are in fact listening to the Therefore I Geek podcast. It just happens that the first several episodes we recorded went by the name Random Thought Generator. We changed the name starting with episode 9, but decided not to go back and try changing everything about the old episodes. So, without further ado, enjoy this episode of Therefore I Geek. You are listening to Random Thought Generator, episode number two, Game of Thrones season three recap. Welcome to Random Thought Generator. I'm Andrew. And I'm Tracy. And as you may have guessed by today's theme song, we are going to be talking about Game of Thrones season three. And foreshadowing season four. So obviously if we're talking about season three and what we expect to be coming in season four, there will be spoilers in this podcast, so be forewarned. So I think today we're going to we'll go ahead and start off just kind of jumping around location-wise, but starting off with the Night's Watch up in the north. Season 3 starts with the Night's Watch, so it's good that we're starting with that. But for me, and this might sound heretical, but I found that storyline to be a little boring. And I don't know if it was the screenwriting or if it was just the location. Well, the story doesn't really move. There's a couple of little spots where we get some nice little touches of action. And that really happens through the entire season everywhere. You don't get a whole lot of action. But especially in the North, you get a lot of people walking, narrative things happening, but not really no action. Yes. There was this one moment in the first episode where Commander Mormont says, we have to make it. We have to warn them before winter's done. Everyone you ever know, you've ever known will be dead. But if we're to believe how long these winters normally last up north, won't everyone be dead anyway? That just seems a little bit... Yeah, I mean, possibly. It's a very dramatic thing to say, but I, I think that it's, it's a, a little... It's aroused the troops speech. You know? <laughs> That's true. That is true. Oh, so Jon Snow. Jon is now with the wildlings. We start off the season... With one wildling in particular. Yeah, we know how you feel about him. Tracy's not a particular fan of Ygritte. No, not at all. Not even a little. But so the season... For Jon, anyways, the season starts off with him being introduced to uh, Mance Raider, who... Fantastic actor. Um, if you've watched other HBO shows like He Rome. seemed a little old. If if you've read the book, he seemed a little old for that part. But He, he is, but... I, I love the actor, yeah. so... He played Caesar in Rome in the, in the first season of that. Did a fantastic job. But Jon's got a lot... He's, he's kind of out of his element, but he's figuring things out. They've got to climb the wall, which is crazy. Oh, we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah, that went, that gave me chills. That whole scene. Oh, I'm not a big fan of heights anyway, but no, neither am crazy. I. I'm pretty terrified of them. Before we go too far, I do want to talk about his introduction to Mance Raider because it's different than it was in the books. Right. And this whole setup was that he had seen the White Walker take Craster's male son, and Commander Mormont didn't do anything about it, and so he says, "I want to fight for the side that fights for the living." And I just. Having read the book and having read the setup in the book, which was that Mance Raider had climbed the wall before, had infiltrated Winterfell while there was a party going on. Remember at the very beginning of the first season when King Robert was there and everything. And so Mance Raider was kind of hiding out and watching what was going on. John found out that Mance had been there at that time and says, you saw how they treated me. I'm a bastard. I don't fit in. It makes more sense for me to be up here where I will fit in. I will have a, a community that accepts me. And I thought that that was a little bit more of a strong reason for him to join it's more them. human see I, I i don't i don't dislike the what was given in the show as much as you do i think that was for a for a reason to fight that's a good reason to fight 
but it, but you're right. It's, it's much less human. There's much less of an emotional connection to Jon Snow that way. And that kind of, I think, fits into the way the character is generally portrayed in the show. Yeah. Is there's a little bit, he's a little bit more detached. The character's not detached. The character's very emotional. But we, as the audience, are a little more de- emotionally detached from Jon Snow. I, I'm not really sure why that is. I'm not sure what is the difference. Because in the book, I like him a lot. And in the show, I like looking at him a lot. He's really nice looking but i don't like him so much i'm not really sure why but my point being that i think that that was a slightly weaker reason for him to join and less likely for mance raider to believe him All right so but going back to the climb though john and Yeager get cut get to the line gets cut and they, they and by the warg right no who doesn't like them in the first place so we already know we don't like that guy and he doesn't like them who, who is the pirate with one with the wooden eye from Pirates of the Caribbean? That's right. It was. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, he looked very familiar. Yeah, it took me took me a little while. I was like, wait a second. I I know this guy before, from somewhere. Two very different roles. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they're both kind of they're edgy, but they're not like badass edgy. They're kind of just on the outskirts of society edgy. That moment, though, when they start falling, my heart was in my throat both times. And I've seen this season twice. I saw it as it was being released um, last year. And then I saw it on DVD this year. And every time it just it's really it's very realistic. You feel like you're right there, which I think is kind of hard sometimes for TV shows, especially with a slightly lower budget than a movie to really get you into the feeling that you're not just watching something happen, you're right there. And that was scary. So, obviously, one of the biggest things that happens in the North towards the end of the season is the decimation of the Night's Watch. And this takes place at Craster's Keep, and the Lord Commander, Mormont, is killed. A significant portion, pretty much all of the Night's Watch who went ranging uh, are dead, and our sole survivor that we know of is good old Sam, who, uh, along with one of Craster's daughters, makes it back to Castle Black, makes it back to the Wall, and to Maester Aemon. I I say this a lot, and I'm going to continue to say it, but this is very different from the way that it happened in the books, the massacre at Craster's Keep. In the books, it starts out in the prologue. I mean, they're setting up for this. You know this is coming. There are mutineers among the Night's Watch that want to take over. They Really, they don't even want to be in the Night's Watch anymore. They just want to survive, which is understandable. But at the same time, when you're looking at the show, it just seems a lot more spontaneous. It seems a, oh, we need to survive right now. And the only way to do that is to stop, to kill anyone that stands in our way. And Commander Mormont stands in their way. Right now, obviously, l- looking forward a little bit for those of you who don't know, John John Snow, who's been groomed for the position, will become Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. But obviously, in order to do so, Sir um, not Sir George, Lord Commander Mormont has to die. You know, the yes. old the old Lord Commander has to die in order for John to become the new one. What I like about what I like about this show and what I like about the books is that it feels very realistic. And although there are points of it, admittedly, that are just not realistic at all, the whole storyline in which John is being groomed for the commander position is so organic feeling that you really get startled that he's going to have to be the commander now. For me, I think, oh, no, it's going to take at least five years for him to get to the point where he can take over. And suddenly he has to take over now. And I realize that that's necessary for the storyline to be advanced but at the same time you get so wrapped up in who the people are that it catches you off guard it caught me off guard there's also the fact that it put it puts john in a, in a difficult position because he's not ready for this for this job and he's not even there actually at the moment well, yeah, yeah he's, he's not he's even not there. there but at the same time you realize especially if you read the book the night's watch leadership has now been decimated in the book they did a little bit better of a job explaining you know 
this is the biggest, this is a significant portion of the Night's Watch that has gone, gone ranging, and it's only 300 men. So Night's Watch is, may, what, maybe 500 men? Maybe a thousand, maybe, maybe a thousand. But, th- I mean, this is, this is the best warriors. This is all the leaders, a, a, a lot of the leadership. So when this when this group of rangers gets wiped out, there it's is... a lot of the experienced ones too. Most of the people left behind are green, so or the... really old like Meister Eamon. right? And so you're now left with a bunch of people that will never have veterans to learn from, right? So their chance of survival is way lower now. That, it's and pretty scary again. Position. I mean, Jon Snow just he's not ready for this position, but he has to take it because there is no one else. And I mean, even though he's a bastard, even though his name is Snow, he's a Stark, and his name lends credence to it you know his uncle was first ranger and is of the blood of the first men the starks have have manned the wall for thousands of years yes brand storyline gets hugely condensed from what it was in the book to what it is in the show and in some ways that's really really good because george rr R. martin is not concise He's not a concise author at all. So, he, his writing is fantastic, but he is exceptionally verbose. And uh, it can get overwhelming. Yeah, which so, is why I can read like 20 pages a day. It's freaking terrible. It is very bad. But at the same time, some things that I think were important got a little bit left out or skipped over in this sh- foreshortening. At the same time, though, I really enjoy this storyline as it is right now, I think that as we get towards season four, I'm not going to like it as much because I know what happens. But at the same time, I really like Jojen Reed. I really like Mira Reed. I love Asha. I've loved Asha since the minute that she stepped yeah, foot she's, on the show. She's one of the better characters. And an exceptional actress. She does such a great job for me. I just, I understand her emotions. And for me, and I'm going to talk about Yin Yang's a little bit more, but I find that George R. R. Martin puts a lot of opposites into his storyline. So you You've got the dragons versus the white walkers. You have fire magic and ice magic. You have um, the undead icemen, and then you have the undead Beric Dondarrion. So for me, Asha is the polar opposite of Theon Greyjoy. Both were taken in by the Starks under odd circumstances. In fact, for most of their lives, Theon was treated much, much better than Asha. And Theon turns into a complete jerk, (laughs) to say it lightly. And at the same time, Asha says in one of the episodes... They took me in and they treated me well when they had no reason to. I'm going to take care of their children. Right. I, I was not as enamored with this particular portion of the show. Just certain certain parts I, I enjoyed. The interactions between Mira and Asha like when they're skinning the rabbits. Yes, the that's two of them. great. Bran, they're bickering a lot and Bran tells them to play basically play nice like little children. And Asha still doesn't quite get it like. You know, Mira, Mira says something uh, nice, and then Asha says, "I told you." I told you of, I knew what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, instead of saying something nice back, I think I think we've all had our those of us with siblings at least have all had our parents do that to us. Okay, say something nice to your brother. Say something nice to your sister. It was a very very interesting moment like that. But in general, Bran's storyline didn't really grip me. And they didn't really they haven't made a very good connection to what he has to do with anything else yet. So that I think also is lending itself to why we don't really connect with it very well we don't see how it fits in the rest of this puzzle that is true of course brand storyline though does have one of my favorite characters at least actor wise in hodor hodor just yeah just because i mean that's literally the only line he's got but he says it with such feeling <laughs> uh and if, if you've had a chance to watch the the game of thrones season four foreshadowing uh he's got a great they, they were asking several of the actors what their favorite favorite line from season three that their character says. And um, you know, Daenerys says uh, Draconis, 
No, no. Um, Dracarys. Dracarys. That's right. Dracarys. And he kind of looks at the guy who plays Hodor and he's like, well, there was a time I said Hodor or the time I said Hodor. And it was, just, it was a really amusing moment. It's also a little odd see, watching him talk normally because he's, you know, he plays, he plays an idiot in the, in the, in the show. And then he's like, oh, wait, no, he's not actually an idiot. Right. I got to remember that. So moving. King's Landing. Yeah, moving a bit south here. Going Yay. To King's Landing. Some of our favorite characters in King's Landing. Um, your favorite redhead. Uh, my favorite redhead's in the north. <clears throat> your favorite redhead is in the south. Sansa? Yeah, Sansa. See? Exactly. I don't like the redhead in the north, and he doesn't like the redhead in the south. I'm not a big fan of the redhead in the south either. Well, Sansa just, Sansa whines a lot. Sansa cries a lot. Sansa cries a lot in every season, though. So. I know. I Honestly, I can't tell if it's Sophie Turner that I don't like, or if it's just Sansa's character, or if it's a mix of the two. I think it's a mix of the two because I really don't like her voice. It's very whiny. It's very 21st century teenager. I'm very nasally. You almost expect her to throw a like in there every now and then. Like, uh, or you know. Yeah, that is, I mean, that doesn't bother me quite as much. You are right. Some You said it sarcastically a moment ago, but you are right in that some of my favorite characters are in King's Landing. My two favorite, Bronn and Tyrion. Oh, you left out Varys? Varys is not no. your... Oh. oh, no, 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 no. I do I do really enjoy Lord Varys, but still, Bronn and Tyrion, especially the interactions between the, the interac- two of oh, them. Oh, yeah. They are funny. When they're walking the... the first, uh, maybe the second or third episode, they're walking the walls of King's Landing, and they're talking, and, and Bronn's demanding more payment. Tyrion's like, I don't even know what I pay you now. And Bronn's like, well, then you can afford it. <laughs> I thought we were friends. We are friends. Oh, and the third one of this this little trio, Podrick. What? <laughs> Podrick, what did you do? And it's never explained. We don't know what he did. Though apparently word spreads around around the castle because if you watch... Doesn't uh, Varys bring it up later? Isn't that Varys it? doesn't bring it up later, but there's a scene... Podrick comes to get either Sansa or Loras Tyrell. He comes to get one of the two of them, I think. I think Sansa. And you can see he runs past a couple of just random women in the... Uh, in the gardens? Yeah in the, yeah, in the gardens. And they look at him and they immediately turn and start giggling and, and going back and forth. <laughs> it's just it's something in the back. I, didn't I notice, never noticed No, I didn't that. notice it That's the first great. time around. The second time around, though, it was really funny because you can see that and it's like, well, apparently Podrick's, Podrick's gifts are, are spreading. He has a reputation now. It's a good reputation to have. One thing I kind of missed was the back and forth between Littlefinger and Lord Varys. There were a couple of scenes in this season, but not as much as we've been seeing in the past. And in a little bit of foreshadowing, that that's going to continue to decrease. We're not going to see them together as much, which is really sad because I I do so enjoy the Littlefinger Lord Varys storyline. And well, that go, the the two of them go back to the 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 yin and yang thing you were talking about before. Very much. There's been a, you know, a number of theories online amongst fans you know that the show uh, the books are really more about lord Varys and and little finger Varys representing the realm little finger representing chaos well, chaos even, is a ladder not even just chaos as much but i mean i mean obviously he says that but chaos representing the, the self yes everything Varys does is about the realm everything little finger does is about little finger and Littlefinger's reputation is built on his whorehouses and giving pleasure, whereas Lord Varys really can't ever receive any anymore. Except for maybe torturing that dude. That was 
that moment and here I, I was going to bring something up because Cersei wants to be so intimidating but she has that moment with Marjorie where she's talking about or telling the story of the reigns of Castamere and it's so anticlimactic I mean he, she's doing her best to give dramatic pauses and tell this story in a chilling way and there's just nothing chilling about it it's just a story from her and all Lord Varys has to do is lift the lid of a wooden box and you feel chills down your spine. Part of that with Cersei is Cersei had immense power in season two as the queen regent. And she's going against Tyrion and she's outmatched by Tyrion, but not not so grossly in her power base. Tyrion's much more brilliant. Tyrion's much more capable, but he's not. he doesn't have the same power base that she does. When Tywin comes back and is now Hand of the King, he's Tywin Lannister. Yes. Not only has he been was he hand of the king for twenty years, he's Lord of Casterly Rock. He has And her so, father. Yeah. He has so much more power than she does, she can't in any way, shape, or form compete. She really doesn't like that. No, at but all. there's nothing she can do about it either. She tries. You know, she tries to be manipulative, but she's not clever enough to be manipulative. She tries power brokering, but she doesn't have enough to, to win anybody back. The big thing with Cersei that you don't get to see in the show, and this is just the way that TV versus books are, is that you see a lot more of her internal monologues in the books and you understand exactly how powerless she feels, but also how she overestimates her own intelligence. She spends a lot of time thinking about how smart she is, how she's as good as any man, but then she allows herself... She allows her her own mistakes with regards to her children to actually circumvent her own plans. She will she tries to set up her own plans, but then she's so busy trying to cover for Joffrey that she basically destroys herself. Yeah, one of the things I do like about Cersei, although you know, as this show progresses, she gets nastier and nastier, especially when she's drunk. She gets super nasty when she's drunk. But there are little moments, really one each season that are very humanizing for Cersei. She has one with Robert in season one, and she's got one one in season two and three with Tyrion. In season three, I enjoyed, she's talking about, you know, where Tyrion needs to give Sansa a child. Yes. Because when everything goes to hell, even even as terrible as Joffrey is, her children still bring her happiness, especially like said, as, as awful as Joffrey can be. He brings her some degree of happiness. Well, he did. I think that she makes a point to say that he used to. And that well, now he, she... He used to much more. I th- he, at this point, I think... He makes her miserable. Well, I think, but it, now, yeah, it's more Tommen and Marcella. Who we haven't even seen recently, actually, which is funny. No, we haven't seen Marcella since the middle of season two. And we haven't seen Tommen since episode nine of season two. Yeah. Last time we see Tommen is when, right before Cersei tries to, is going to poison him at, at the Battle of King's Landing in the uh, on the Iron Throne. Right, right. I remember that scene. That. And considering that we just saw the whole leech moment with the red woman, we know that something's happening, going to happen to Joffrey. So we should be seeing a lot more of Marcellus and Marcella and Tommen. Well, at least, at least Tommen. Yeah. I don't know about Marcella. Cause she's, I can't remember who she married, but or was supposed to marry. Oh, while we're, while we're here in King's Landing, can we talk about the Tyrells? Because yes. I love this family. Marjorie is such a manipulative bitch and I love it. I love it. She has Joffrey completely wrapped around her little finger. Right. She where where Sansa's you know the little girl who wants to be princess and queen, Marjorie Tyrell, and the actress who plays her obviously has played similar roles as Anne Boleyn in The Tudors. 
it's a little bit different where she she's manipulative in the tutors but at the, at the end it all falls apart for her whereas this she's manipulative but it, there doesn't seem to be quite the the maniacal lead behind it and it doesn't seem like I mean, we think bad things, you know, we know bad things are going to happen to Joffrey, so bad things are going to happen to her, but they're not going to happen directly to her. Bad things happen to Anne Boleyn because of things Anne Boleyn did. Bad things are going to happen to to Marjorie Tyrell because bad things happen to people she's around, not because of things she has done. I think that she's well trained as well. Now that we've met Lady Olena, who is a fantastic actress and character. Yes, she's pretty amazing. Um, Having but, having just read that part in the book, I was really hoping because I couldn't. I, I'd been it'd been almost a year since I'd watched the season. I was really hoping that Lady Elena would would refer to her her son and husband as Oafs, the Lord Oaf. And of she High delivered. Yeah, and I saw that. I was like, man, that's a great line. I really hope it's in the book, or I hope it's in the movie, show. Really hope it's in the show. And it was right there, and I was like, oh, that was nice. I I love the way that Lady Elena speaks to Tywin. And after all, even though she's been outmatched, even though she has lost their showdown, she says, finally, a man who lives up to his reputation. And you remember that at the beginning of her introduction to the show, she was very disappointed in Tyrion because she came expecting a lecherous, debaucherous drunk. And she found, what did she say, a worn down bookkeeper? And she was so disappointed because she was expecting this interesting unusual person and he wasn't and then just even though she lost her showdown with Tywin she still appreciated his ability to outmatch her well, she and Tywin are also of the same generation too that helps I think you know when you're when she's talking about her son or her grandchildren or a lot of the other current high lords of the realm you know they're they're of her children's generation they're not they're not of her generation so that there's there's an age gap and kind of a, a little bit of a lack of understanding between them. Whereas when she's dealing with Tywin, this is a man who has lived a very similar life to what she has. So, so they get they get each other better. While I'm on the topic of Lady Olena's showdowns, she did win against Varys, though. That was amusing. I don't even know that I would consider that winning against Varys. It was just a lot of fun back and forth. They're both very capable speakers, very, very clever people. And I don't think either of them felt like it was a win or a lose so much as an, uh, a pleasant matching of wit. Yes, very much. We're moving from moving from one king in King's Landing to King of the North, who's not really in the North. He's in River Run at the moment. Right. Uh, Rob Stark starts off the season, starts with the book, I don't remember if he starts with the season, going to River Run for the funeral of his grandfather. And this is just another example of how season three got really dark really quickly that we start right off with Caitlin Stark, formerly Tully's father's death. She's really broken up about this, even though up until now, you don't you haven't heard much about her family or felt that she was close to her family, at least at least in the in the show, in the book. I'll be honest, I was actually kind of glad Lord Lord Hoster finally went because he was dying for so long in the second book and that was all Catelyn chapters could talk about. It just drove me nuts after a while. The story needed to move on. I wrote a little bit about Catelyn in my post about strong female characters and this is another example of where she's spends a lot of time thinking about her family, which clouds her judgment when thinking about the kingdom. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with that. And Catelyn really is not my favorite character, especially in the book. Catelyn chapters drive me nuts because it's the same crap again and again and again. 
in the in the show she's a little more interesting i think a lot of that has to do with the actress i think she she really drives that character there's a lot there's a lot behind her her performance there is that one moment when she's talking to rob stark's wife that she talks about how she had promised the gods that she would take care of Jon Snow and love him like a son and ask her husband to give him a proper name and then she doesn't make good on that promise. That's not in the books. And I think it's a little humanizing. There have been a couple articles lately about the, about how the book and the movie don't line up. And I've actually I've actually looked up some, some interviews about George R.R. R. Martin talking about it. And to be honest, he's okay with it. Yeah, he, he admits, you know, you can't put everything in the book and TV and it's not all going to work well. But I think that's actually one of the great additions to the book or excuse me, to the show is some of that, some of that humanizing, um, the wife character I can, you know, I can do with her without, I'm not really, I'm not a big fan of her either. I'm not super sold on her, but I think the moment between she and Kat, uh, it was really telling. Or Rob Stark's wife's character is not who she is in the books. In the books, it makes a little more sense that Rob would fall in love with her since he was wounded and spent a few months in her castle with her family and she tended to his wounds and they fell in love. The way that the show has this happening is a a little bit awkward, a little bit strange. And honestly, at this point, for as far as I'm invested in that that character, he may as well have married one of the Fries. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a pretty homely looking bunch. Except one... Yeah, except for except for the one that they give to poor Edmir. Also, another great actor I loved from Rome, who played um, Brutus. He's got great facial expressions. He does, and he and he does he does troubled very well. Obviously, Brutus is, Brutus was a very troubled character, and Edmir kind of is too. It, you know, he he's he's his he's his father's heir, but he's moderately inept. He's under a lot of pressure, but he's not quite competent competent enough to live up to it. Yeah, and he's surrounded by all these important people, but he's not really one himself. You know, now his nephew is now king of the north, and he's trying to, my nephew's king of the north. I, I need to show how, how spectacular, how great I am. So he goes after uh, Clegane at the mill, which is completely the wrong thing to do. But, and he's trying to do it to, to impress Rob, to show him how, how, how helpful he can be, how useful he can be, and he just completely screwed everything up. Speaking of the Tullys, I love Blackfish. I love his character. I love the actor. I love his lines. He's fantastic. Yeah, I really wish he had been in season two because he's in book two a lot. And I really could have, season two could have really done with some more of him. Or him at all, I should say. While we're over in the River Run area, Jamie and Brienne, a lot of stuff happened to them this season. A lot of things. So obviously, the the big thing is Jamie loses his, his hand. And not just his hand, but his sword hand. And, and Jamie has really become one of my, has become one of my favorite characters. He's he's becoming much more human. Uh, there's a great scene between he and Brienne in the baths where Jamie starts talking about about what happened uh, right before the sack of King's Landing, when he actually killed King Aerys. And you and you start to realize that you know Jamie has always been defined up until this point as the Kingslayer. This is a man who, he was a king's guard and he killed the king. And to Jamie, this digs it, like this really digs at him. The way he sees it, he did the absolute thing he had to do. At one point when the maester's working on his hand, or what's left of his hand, his stump. Stump. <laughs> Tracy's uh, shaking her head, slightly disgusted. And, uh, 
the effects in this show are a little too realistic at times yes but so when jamie's talking to the maester the maester makes a little bit of a snide comment and says well how many men have you saved and without really missing a beat jamie says half a million and the maester looks at him kind of puzzled and he says the population of king's landing because he knew if he didn't kill Ares, he was going to kill everyone in king's landing and as as bad as the sack of king's landing was it would have been way, way worse had Ares burned the entire city. But, so because of that, Jamie did what he thought was right, and he is constantly vilified for it. And you start to realize that every time someone calls him Kingslayer, which is all the damn time, it, it, it digs at him every time, and it's really taken a toll on him. Not only are we seeing some of the things that make him human, but he's also becoming more human, I think, personally, the farther away and the longer he stays away from Cersei. Cersei is manipulative. I mean, and for she's not only attempting to manipulate Tyrion, and she does, but she's even trying to, and has always been the most manipulative and has had a lot of power over Jamie. even though anyone looking at the pair of them would think that Jamie, as the oldest, as the heir, would be the more powerful of the two. But she has a hold on him. Well, Jamie also gets, gets fairly humbled this season. I mean, he loses his sword hand. Jamie, aside from being a king's guard, Jamie's considered the best sword in the kingdom, and now he's lost his sword hand. He, he I mean, he can still fight with his other hand because he's still very skilled, but it's not gonna, it's never gonna be as good as it was. He's never gonna be who he was, and now he's kind of gotta dig, dig. He's either gotta, gotta either just gotta kind of become a a shell of what he was, or he's gotta choose to dig deep and not really reinvent, but look at what else he is and who else he is and what else he has to offer. I think he's also coming to terms with the fact that at this point in time, he doesn't have a lot else to offer and he's going to have to become a better man. Uh, So also going on in the general river run area is uh, we start off with Arya, Gendry and uh, hot pie. pie, That's right. Hot pie. They've escaped from Harrenhal and are fairly quickly taken captive, quote unquote captive by the Brotherhood without banners. Yes, and here we have Thoros of Mir, who's actually got a slightly larger part in the books. But in we're, this one, he's taken over multiple characters. He's we over... also we also we've heard about Thoros of Mir a couple times. Right. He, he gets mentioned. He gets mentioned a couple times by Sir Jorah, and um, he's talked about during the uh, the Hands Tournament way in season one, long, long ago. They talk about Thoros of Mir and his flaming sword. Right, and again, one again, Sir Jorah and Barrister Selmy are talking. About uh, when Sir Jorah earned his knighthood, uh, Barrister Selmy says he was the first one through the walls at Pike, and he, Sir Jorah says, "No, no, that honor goes to Thoros of Mir with that flaming sword of his." And Sir Barrister kind of has a moment. He's like, "Oh yeah, that guy." And it's very much understood by everyone that the flaming sword at that time was just kind of a a trick. It was a hoax. It's made a little more clear in the books, I think, that he actually destroys the sword every time he does that. He dips it in some kind of oil, lights it on fire, and it destroys the metal. Yeah. It's more a, an effect. Yeah, it, it, yeah, that that's mentioned in, in the first book at the hands tournament because I think does he? I think he wins the melee, or he does well. He does well in the melee. So the reason that we say this is because it comes up in this season, the flaming sword, but this time it's not a trick. And it's not wielded by Thoris of Mir at all. It's wielded by Beric Dondarrion, who was at the Hands Tournament and was thereafter killed. 
Right. Well, if you've read the books, Beric Dondarrion is the one who Ned Stark sends out to kill... Uh, Gregor Clegane for Gregor, his crimes. Right. I, always, I always get the two mixed up. Sandor is the hound. Right. So, yeah, he goes out, he sends him to kill the mountain, or to bring him back or kill him. And then you kind of don't hear from... You hear like, he's out raiding. You keep hearing he's raiding, he's raiding. But you don't ever get any real details. So, Beric's been killed how many times? Six now? I think so. I think we're at six. And he's a little tired. And, yeah, and well, and twice by a Clegane. And he, ma- he yeah. makes a joke <laughs> about that. So so what happens is that they all, right after capturing Arya and, and Gendry and Hot Pie, they're at the inn, which is like the same inn all the damn time. Every it's time. It's all the time because it's at a really great crossroads that you end up at, I guess, every time you crisscross River Run area. Right, so it's and when it's near the it's near uh, the Trident, if it's I remember correctly. But they're at the inn, and just as as the as the kids are getting ready to leave, uh, they come in, and there's the and they've got the Hound who ran off drunk at the Siege of King's Landing, and Arya's almost at the door, and the Hound recognizes her. Oh, that's and, such a and calls her heart sinking moment. Yeah, may I point out that there's a little bit of a difference in the Brotherhood without banners in the show. And the Brotherhood without banners in the books. Because in the books, they're a lot more philanthropic. They feel a lot less motivated by money. In the show, they sell people for money twice. Two different times. Um, Once when they promise Arya that they'll let her go. And then they decide once they figure out who she is that they will sell her or have her ransomed by her brother and then also when uh gendry is sold to the red woman and that was a little disheartening for me because i really enjoyed the brotherhood without banners in the books they were very much fighting for the little people there's a great um a great monologue in the book that it didn't make it into the show about that very topic about how there's a huge cost to the to the little people of the realm that we never really see we see the great folks we see the starks we see the lannisters we see the tyrells we don't see the little people it's funny because there actually there's a moment in the show in season one between ser jorah and daenerys when he talks about uh daenerys has always had this idea that from her brother who was a flaming idiot that that the the people the people drink silent toasts to to viserys and things like that and ser jorah kind of stomps on that idea it says that the common people don't don't care what what the high lords do they pray for a good harvest and a summer that never ends and that's all they care about they don't care what you high lords care about exactly i should say well in his case what we high lords because he was one too getting back to the the fight there so you got the hound who is accused of murder originally accused and then accused again by Arya for killing the butcher's boy back in season one so Beric Dondarrion fights him in, in single combat and uh, the Hound wins because he's the Hound. But what's interesting is the Hound is, Tracy mentioned, he's fighting with the flaming sword. And obviously the Hound is terrified of fire. Uh, because of what happened to him as a child. Right. And, and that comes into play. That his, his shield gets caught on fire. And you can actually see the actors a great job of portraying that gut-wrenching fear uh, in the Hound. I mean, the, the, the shield catches fire and he's... At one point, he stops fighting and starts beating his own shield off with his sword to get the fire away. And that was really good. And then, of course, he kills Beric Dondarrion. Then Thoris of Mir prays over him and Beric comes back. And this is the first moment in Game of Thrones where, or a Song of Ice and Fire either, in which we really see that there is a real mystical power. Whether They call it R'hllor, the god of light. Whether it is or is not, this is the first moment that we see any religion with real power. And that's kind of important 
um, I think that we have the old gods and then we have the new seven gods and now we have this one true god quote unquote coming in from the south and he's the only one that so far or at least this religion is the only one so far that has any real power yeah, well we get a little bit more not not with not a, obviously a direct comparison to the bible but we get a little bit more a comparison to the missionaries i think well, of I was, medieval I, well, Europe. I was thinking more like you get a little bit of the kind of the old old testament god where god's actually doing stuff that that kind of you know where where the new god where, where the old gods and the seven are just they're 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 supposed to be there and maybe they are maybe they aren't but they're they're people you pray to but they're not really they're more like they don't have of, impact in your daily life Norse gods or Egyptian gods right and the stuff that's happening in the north and there is some magic happening in the north with the White Walkers coming back and Bran's storyline where he's receiving the sight those things are ostensibly i guess from the old gods which we don't really know that much about right but at the same time it almost just feels like this is just kind of an in general magic that happens to be in the land and they're picking up on it whereas down in beric dondarian's camp there is a specific god that they pray to they pray over the dead man's body and he comes back to life it's very specifically religious now, I mean, there are a couple of other mystical things in the books. Um, in book two, when Daenerys's dragons are around, there are oh, the pe- power, yeah, comes people's back magical to power, Karth. Yeah, magical power comes back to Karth. The warlocks of Karth become much more powerful. But again, I feel like that's more just generic magic as opposed to anything that's specifically spiritual. Right, but I mean, we do, we do, we do, you do get a little bit of magic uh, interspersed in the books that we haven't quite gotten in the show. Theon, Theon Greyjoy. We spend a lot of time with Theon this this season, a lot and of really uncomfortable time. That's yes, very. I see a lot of stuff online where people kind of vindicate Theon. They say that he's suffered more than enough, and that you know he's more than paid for his crime. Some people really like Theon. And I have to say, I don't agree. If we recall back to season two, he did some really awful stuff. He went and got those two orphan boys killed them, burnt them, and then told all of Winterfell that he had killed the sons of Ned Stark. He killed Sir Roderick and couldn't even do it properly, so sawed through half his head and kicked the rest of it off, which which is an awful scene. He did some terrible, really messed up stuff, and I don't feel sorry for him at all. Yeah, I don't feel sorry for him, um, as I like the character in the book a lot better. I think he's a a more human character. In, in in the show, Theon's very overconfident and a little bit too cocky, and you just kind of you kind of want to not like him. Oh, that smirk and that mustache together! I don't know if it's the smirk or the mustache or both. Don't, oh. don't call that a mustache. It's not really a mustache. <laughs> no, it's not. But in the in the books, Theon up until really up until he kills the the two kids, Theon wants to be accepted. He wants to be loved. You know, for a long time, you know, he's he's. A ward of the Starks, but he's not a Stark. He's not he's not Jon Snow. He's not an outcast, but he's not a Stark. He's not an equal. And then he goes home and he thinks, my father's going to love me. I'm his heir. I'm his only surviving son. And his father doesn't give a shit. And then his sister really just treats him like an idiot because you don't know our ways. You know, I have 30 ships I command. I've been sailing as long as as long as I've known. You know, what do you know about being about being an Iron Islander? And you know, Theon, just, he, he, no matter what he does, he's not accepted. And that's, he's really trying. It's all he really wants. And then finally he crosses the border where he's just, he's, he, he become bad. Like he just, he, he can't take it anymore. He just does horrible things. But for so long in the book, he's really just, he wants, 
that acceptance and he doesn't get it. And in the show, that's not conveyed nearly as well. I'm not a big fan of the casting of Ramsey Snow slash Bolton, Bruce Bolton's bastard right. son. No, and I mean, I, 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 I kind of enjoy the character. I think he's much more malicious and st- sadistic in the book. Right. Well, I mean, obviously the Boltons are pretty pretty messed up people anyways. Bruce is scary. Well, I think R- Bruce, I think, goes back to an extent back to his ancestors, whereas the bastard here really, really gets pretty twisted. Like, he goes just crazy, crazy shit. In the books, Roos is calculating and, to some extent, evil, but he has an end game in mind. He's looking to make himself more powerful, whereas Ramsey just wants to make everyone hurt. He really just wants to inflict pain. Right. And that doesn't come across as well in the show, I don't think. No, probably not. In this, he seems to have more of a sense of twisted humor and less of a sense of just wanting to make people hurt. Yeah, uh, that's that's probably a good analogy. So we've talked a little bit about the Red Woman and the the God of Light, uh, and obviously the, the the real emphasis in the story on those character on those particular parts comes from Dragonstone with the camp of King Stannis and uh, Melisandre. And I think one of Tracy and I, both our favorite characters, is Davos, the Onion Knight. Yes, I love Davos. Um, but I would be remiss not to mention that this is the first time that we've seen Selyse, Stannis Baratheon's wife, and she's just as crazy in the show as she is in the books. Well, yeah, she's, she's mentioned a couple times, obviously, in the show and in the book before this. But yeah, you never actually see her until this point. And this is really when you get the feeling or the understanding that she's the one that is driving Stannis's devotion to the God of Light and to the Red Woman. Up until this point, it's seemed very strange that Stannis and with with his particular character that he would ever be particularly attracted to any religion right. he seems much more he's, he seems to trust his own strength of arms much more than he would any god so now it suddenly becomes clear that his wife is the one that's the true worshiper and he's kind of been slowly intoxicated by this feeling that he can know the future and that his association with the red woman and the god of light will get him the throne stannis is i think is an interesting character he's very much the you know the dutiful brother to robert you know renly was a child during robert's rebellion but stannis was was old enough where he he held storm storm's end he's always felt slighted he should have had storm's end but robert gave it to renly because stannis was unable to get daenerys and viserys from dragonstone uh, after the sack of king's landing and they really just he's always kind of harbored a grudge he served, but not not wholeheartedly. He was very much just kind of stayed at Dragonstone while Robert was king. He didn't really stir from there a whole lot. And well, I mean, from what I understand, though, I thought it, he he served on Robert's small council. He and Renly, I think, both served on the council. He was he had left though by the beginning of the right. But the big thing for Sir Davos, and he's really my favorite character in this section of Westeros. Westeros but he's learning to read. Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun, and um, Stannis' daughter is teaching him, and that's very cute. Yes, she's adorable. They did a great casting job with her. Um, she's such a sweetheart in the books. I'm very, very pleased with her character in the show, and just Sir Davos is so earnest and so sincere, and he's so cute when he's learning to read, and he says, Nigt. Because yeah. who didn't say that when they were learning to read? It's night, and it's so difficult. Why is there an H in night? I don't know. 
Well, one of the things I love about Sir Davos is he, you know, he's not noble-born. He gets a, he gets his knighthood after helping lift the Siege of King's Landing by smuggling in his onions, which is why he calls himself the Onion Knight. But he's a man who understands where he came from and his place in the universe. He doesn't want to be a high lord like like so many so many of the other characters do. Davos he wants better for his children, like most parents do, and that's actually why he's, he admits it. That's why he accepted the knighthood because he wants more for his son, uh, the the eldest in particular, but sons in general. In the show, he only has one son, which I think is sad because well, no, you only he has see six. one son. He mentions several other. He mentions the younger sons, and then Salador um, Salador San mentions the even younger ones with that are still with his wife. Ah, okay. But yeah, but Davos. He just he's okay with who he is and where he is and he does the best that he can with with what he's got. He doesn't even seem particularly threatened when he's told that he can be sent to the dungeons or he can be killed because he understands that if that's what is his fate then that's his fate and he doesn't really fight his fate ever. Well, and he's also as a smuggler he was also pushing that limit for for years. He always knew that that was that was a threat out there. And I think when you lived under that threat for so long it, it loses some of its meaning. You know, I'm going to get sent into the dungeons. Well, I've always been, that's always been looming over me. I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do and what I feel is right. And if that's what happens, then that's what happens. I'm really pleased that they've combined several characters into the Gendry character because it makes the storyline a lot more sleek. Um, but at the same time, I, the Red Woman and the way that she treats people is very messed up. And it's only going to get worse. I mean, this is foreshadowing season four and she's getting progressively more power hungry. I'm not even sure that she's actually much of a servant of the Red God. I'm not. I'm, I'm a little confused as to what exactly her game plan is here. Does she actually believe what she's saying? Yeah, no, I don't know. There is a great moment after she takes the blood from Gendry. Gendry's back down in the dungeon and, and Davos comes to talk to Gendry and at first Gendry kind of blows him off and Davos explains he's from Flea Bottom and Gendry doesn't really believe him and then he explains he describes Flea Bottom almost perfectly and then Gendry's Gendry's a little more on board for it but there's a moment where where he kind of looks at Gendry and he's like what happened and Gendry's like well you know I've never been with a woman she was there and talking and naked <laughs> what, do you, what did you think was going to happen and Davos just kind of just one of those all right, I'll give you that one. <laughs> oh. The the one big thing that I I dislike inconsistency probably more than absolutely anything. I like no I dislike kidding. yeah. I dislike inconsistencies in plotline and storyline, but I also dislike inconsistencies within characters. And for me, it frustrates me that the red woman, and this is why I question her actual ability to serve the God of Light, because she's so gung-ho that Stannis is going to sit on the Iron Throne, she's going to kill out all of his enemies using Gendry's blood, etc., etc., and then suddenly Davos is the one that has to bring them a message from the Night's Watch saying, hey, the White Walkers are coming, we need reinforcements and we need them now, and all of a sudden, in the course of five seconds, she has completely changed her tune and told Stannis all of these new prophecies that have to do with him ignoring the War of Five Kings and marching north. If she knew the future so well, she should have seen this coming. Exactly. And that's just her character. And yeah. I think it's well written because we're supposed to question her loyalty and her ability and her understanding of the situation. Right. Now, what I, what I do enjoy about that is we, we've talked, we were talking about John John Snow being the new Lord Commander and May I just foreshadow that really quickly? Well, let me finish my thought, please. He's now going to get, and I may be wrong on this, but he's now going to get back up in the form of Stannis, 
who, if nothing else, is a determined, formidable warrior. He held he held Storm's End throughout Robert's Rebellion when anyone else would have would have given up and surrendered. So I think he's going to be a really interesting addition to the North. Plus the Red Woman and Jon Snow, if it's anything like the books, are going to have some very interesting run-ins with each other. <laughs> I somehow don't doubt that. So obviously the one place we haven't really talked about yet is out in the Free Cities with uh, good old Daenerys. Daenerys's storyline is just rambling, wandering, lost. I don't like it. It's boring. She makes poor decisions. She can't decide what she actually wants. Does she want the Iron Throne or does she want to free all the slaves in the free cities? I don't... Yeah, I mean, I certainly I certainly don't know where this story is going. And it's they cert- they've not made anything clear about that. But there are... I, I do think there are some, some very enjoyable parts of that story. We get the introduction, the reintroduction of uh, Sir Barrister Selmy, who's the former commander of the King's the King's Guard, who in the book, especially having read book two recently, there's this kind of continuous play on where did where did Sir Sir Barrister Selmy go? You know, every every king assumes he's with one of the other kings, and there's a constant. Well, if he's not here, well, he's got to be over here. Was well, that there? Okay, well, he, maybe he's over here, and then finally he ends up with Daenerys, uh, which I think is just really quite amusing. Um, there's also probably one of my favorite moments of the entire season is for the first couple of episodes, Daenerys is trying to buy, uh, the Unsullied and she, um, she's talking to the, the, the owner and she's talking through a translator and consistently the translator is just saying some really terrible things to her and the translator is changing it. But we, but we can all see what the, tra- what he's saying. Cause it's, it's subtitled. And then in he's this- speaking high Valyrian, right? He's. Right, that, that, which is important. Well, that, that's that's the reveal is that he's speaking High Valyrian, and Daenerys, being a Targaryen and being of Old Valyria, speaks High Valyrian fluently. So he, she's understanding everything that's being said, and she finally, it's finally revealed when he, when she sells him one of the one of the dragons for the Unsullied. He and then he can't control the dragon, and she tells the dragon to torch his ass. That is, and that's he very and he satisfying. goes up, he goes up real easy. So that's that kind of brings us to the last couple of episodes of the season, which were hard for me. I mean, yeah, I mean, to some extent, I mean, especially on the second time around, you really know what's coming and you kind of see like, oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. Um, it, it really caught me off guard the first time I watched it because I thought they were going to save the Red Wedding for the last episode of the season. And they totally did it in episode nine. And I was not prepared. Well, and look, but looking at that, at that from a production standpoint, it makes more sense to be in episode nine because it gives you a, an ability to wrap up the season and not just leave it there. Because there are there is some wrap up that works much better without a year gap. If they, if they had waited that that between season time i think some of that wrap-up would have lost its impact a little bit the music choices in this season overall are amazing i love that they've really incorporated a lot of the songs from the books for instance in episode seven the bear and the maiden fair when brienne is down in the bear pit fighting the bear there all of the soldiers gathered around cheering are actually singing that song which makes perfect sense it was Right. Well, and but it was a great choice. The the Brotherhood without banners. I think Thoros of Mir is the one who's singing it. A couple of different times, he's singing. He's singing various different songs. He's singing uh, the Bear and the Maiden. He's also singing the Reigns of Castamir. That comes up a few times in this episode, or actually in the whole over across the season, which makes sense because that's what this season is about. But when Jamie saves Brienne from the bear and pulls her out of the pit at the very end. 
the background music switches to the reigns of Castamere and just kind of gives you this insight that he hasn't forgotten and he's not going to forget all of the stuff that that Roose Bolton's men have done to him. Right. Well, there's also right before the Red Wedding, and I hadn't I didn't notice this the first time around because I, I was not familiar with the, the song itself. But right as everything is about to hit the fan, the music, the the band uh, act- at the actual wedding, not just the, the background music, but the band starts playing the Reigns of Castamere and you realize shit is about to get real. That was a really hard moment. I, it, that was just that was a really rough episode for me. Um, and at all, again, talking about the music choices, as soon as that episode ended and the credits started to roll, there was no final song. It was completely silent. No, I- I've actually seen that a few times in not not Game of Thrones, but in other things. The Hunger Games. There's a there's a scene where the scene where uh, Katniss is being lifted in the elevator just before entering the arena, and it's dead silent. I had I had thoroughly underestimated the effectiveness of dead silence before that, where you just it just does terrible things to your mind. You you it, you're expecting some kind of dramatic music, and, and you know we know bad things are going to start happening, and you expect, but when there's nothing, it just really puts you off your game and starts making everything else that much that much heavier and heavier an impact. So some foreshadowing of season four. We had a lot of hints about what was coming up and some really interesting moments. If you've read the books beyond, well, probably through halfway through book three and into book four, then you know what's coming up. But it was really nice that there were a few nods to that up, those upcoming events in season three. One of them is that we're introduced to Kyburn in this season, which is the former maester that works on Jamie's hand. And he's had his chain removed because of some experiments that he did that the guild didn't really approve of. Kind of a la uh, Joseph Mengele, some very, very disturbing kind of stuff. Which we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of that. That's going to get very dark very quickly. I have no doubt. Uh, Shay has this great moment where she's trying to convince Tyrion to leave King's Landing and she says we can still go across the narrow sea and Tyrion responds and what would I do there juggle which has some huge implications for stuff that happens to Tyrion later on we've got Bran telling the story of the rat cook which I think everyone kind of understands the meaning of that that was the idea that you eat bread and salt under someone's roof you're considered a guest and you uh, are safe for the entirety of the time that you're under that roof and the show very much concentrated on the fact that rob stark his mother his wife ate bread and salt with Roose bolton and walder fry and we saw what happened so i mean we can only hope that something really just is off something that only george R. R. martin could contrive will happen to Roose bolton well, I mean, and you gotta say only george R. R. martin that's very greek of them that goes back to um hospitality rules in ancient greece where if a person ate under your roof they were under your protection and if something bad happened to them you were responsible or you know you should not do harm to these people and last but not least, the there's a quote from Ramsey Snow where he's saying to Theon, if you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. It's a very chilling moment. Right. Especially considering all the horrible, horrible things that have already happened to Theon. So what would you say the saddest moment of episode three was? Uh, probably the saddest moment. The last episode when Jamie finally gets back to King's Landing. You know, he obviously he loves Cersei. He's been thinking about trying to get back to her the whole time. He gets back, he's standing there with his hand cut off in rags, and he calls her name and she looks at him, and instead of being overjoyed to see him, she just kind of stares back at him. 
you know, maybe it's she's staring in disbelief that Jamie's back and that, you know, he's, you know, it's, it's obvious he has, he's lost his hand, but at the same time, there was, there was just no feeling there and you really felt for Jamie. For me, the saddest moment is when Arya is speaking to Barry and Dondaria, Barry and Dondarian, and to Thoris of Mir, and she's just understood that the God of Light has brought him back six times. And she says, could you bring back a man without a head? Not six times, just once. And I, I start crying every time I talk about this because it's just this moment where she's really just a little girl. And she's been so strong and she's learning to fight and she's out on her own and she's trying to get back to her family. But she's really just a little girl. Right. And, um, and, and that's also that also is a little bit of one of my favorite uh, pairings at the end of the season. You get Arya and the Hound. That's going to be fun. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing where that's going to go because it's it's a very bizarre pairing. Um, there's a moment towards the end of the end of the last episode. There's some some other Bolton or Frey or Frey soldiers that are talking about 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 the Red Wedding. And Arya goes over and just and kills one of them. And the Hound first of all, the Hound asks where she got a knife, and he realizes he took it from her, or she took it from him. Excuse me, and. Then he just kind of looks at her and he's like, if you're going to do something like that again, tell me. Not don't do it again, but tell me. They're definitely a, a team at that point. Right. My most satisfying moment was Jamie jumping down to save Brienne in the bear pit. I love this. This is another pairing that I really enjoy. And I think that they're starting to, they're definitely a team as well. I'm kind of hoping that there's some feelings going on there as well. Something a little bit romantic. We'll see, I guess. But that that moment where he... I think that's the first moment that he really sacrifices his own safety to save someone else since the moment that he killed King Eris. Yeah, and for me, probably the most satisfying moment is, is one I've already mentioned is when they're in Astapor and uh, they burn the guy who's, who they buy the Unsullied from. Because it was just, there was a, like, you you knew that that was going to come back to bite him in the ass. Because that's kind of a, a, of a Hollywood cliche when you get somebody who's speaking in a foreign language and we get subtitles they're speaking through a translator to the other characters and the translators modifying what they say almost inevitably at least one of the characters speaks the foreign language and it's going to come back to him and that that was a very satisfying moment like i said he really he went up like a marshmallow it was fantastic i think you're a little sadistic just a little so your most exciting moment of season three um, also, again, with Daenerys, was uh, we had Ser Jorah, Grey Worm, and Dario. They go into the second city. I can't remember the name. Yan something. Yunkai. Yunkai. They go into Yunkai, and they fight off a bunch of the uh, the guards there. And it's the, kind of the first time you get a sense of Ser Jorah's a, kind of a badass with a sword. You know, Dario, you kind of you kind of figured. To be a member and to be a... a prominent member of the second sons he's got to be pretty good right and then um gray worm being one of the unsullied you know is going to be pretty awesome but sojora we really haven't seen fight before and this was kind of this was kind of fun you know he he, he won his knighthood being the one of the first ones through the through the walls of pike and now you understand why like he is he is really good at what he does for all that gray worm is given so much praise for being such a great fighter first of all he looks very young in the show very and i realize that he is young but he looks very young and there's something awkward going on with his fighting i don't well i mean he's fighting with a long spear which is not necessarily a real close combat weapon it's kind of a very a greek phalanx kind of and he definitely doesn't have a phalanx at this point it's just him his little round right. sword and that long spear and it just 
I don't know. It just seems like a very awkward setup to be fighting. But I mean, we'll take it on faith that he's a great warrior. Right. My personal most exciting moment is the moment when Sam stabs the White Walker in the shoulder, in the back. So it's not even a death blow in any normal person with the obsidian knife, the uh, dragonstone knife that he found at the fist of the first men. And for the first time, you realize, number one, that there is a way to kill these guys. And number two, that the first men knew about it and had prepared for it. And here is the first time we see the yin-yang setup of dragons versus White Walkers. And I think this is just going to be so exciting in the next season or two. It also gives us a nice bookmark for the not bookmark book end for the season. You know, in the beginning, it's Sam, you had one job to do and you didn't do it. And now it's Sam is the first one to kill a White Walker. That's in a, pretty in awesome. Thousands of years. Sam has done something. Yeah, that's pretty good. And you've kind of, we've kind of been waiting for that one for three seasons. Because you you like Sam. Everyone's got a friend like Sam. They're not really good at much of anything. I mean, Sam's got Sam's got a couple things he's good at. You know, he can read, he can write, he's very, very knowledgeable, and that comes into play. But he's overweight, and he struggles. Really overweight. Yeah, and he struggles, but he said, yeah, he has a hard time. He doesn't fit in at the Night's Watch, but he's at the Night's Watch because he didn't fit in with his family. The Tarleys are great, all great warriors, and he doesn't, he's not, obviously... And so Sam finally, Sam, Sam's finally got a win on his, on, on his scoreboard, like a, a, like a real true look at what I did. And that, that, it's really nice. It's, it, it, it's a little heartwarming, especially up in the cold north. <laughs> really? So, I mean, that's basically season three and a little bit of season four. I mean, at this point, I hesitate to spoil too much because I know a few things are coming. There's a few people that are going to get their come up pence finally. There's one person I think that their particular come to Jesus moment won't be this season. It'll probably be next season, but I'm really looking forward to Cersei getting hers. Right. And I, I haven't I haven't read the book, so uh, I'm I'm along for the ride at this point. So to wrap up this week's show, we're going to go ahead and do what we normally do and talk a little bit about what we're into lately. Personally, I have finished up Ready Player One, which was such a great book. And the payoff at the end was just really good. It wasn't super dramatic or super exciting. It was just so, so satisfying. Since then, I have moved on to Storm of Swords, which I am slowly crawling my way through. You know, George, like we said, George R. R. Martin's work is great, but he's so verbose and it's so heavy that it just takes me forever to get through. Uh, I'm also working on uh, a re-release of the Dragon Ball Z uh, manga. Uh, this time in full color, and it looks just gorgeous. I've always been a fan of the the anime, so it's kind of nice to go back to the original source material and and check it out and see the differences. Okay, for me, I picked up. Uh... I guess they're reprinting the Asterix comics that we talked about in our last podcast. So I picked up the first one, Asterix the Gaul, at Local Heroes here in Norfolk. And so I just finished reading that. I watched Dollhouse for the first time and loved it. I have the same gripe that most fans do that it wrapped up a little too quickly, but that's not really Joss's fault. And I am currently reading the Serenity comics as they come out one at a time. So we've got two issues out so far, and that's what I'm into at the moment. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it in iTunes or check us out at thereforeigeek.com, facebook.com slash thereforeigeek, or on Twitter at thereforeigeek. All right. Well, I'm Andrew. And I'm Tracy. And you've been listening to Random Thought Generator. And who are you? Proud Lord said that I must bow so low Only a cat of a different coat
That's all the truth I know And a coat of gold or a coat of red A lion still has claws And mine are long and sharp, my lord As long and sharp as yours And so he spoke And so he spoke That Lord of Castamere But now the rains weep o'er his heart With no one there to hear Yes, now the rains weep o'er his heart And not a soul to hear